Um, I've been really excited for this series. We're looking at Genesis, the first sort of uh, 11 chapters of the Bible. Um, and yeah, I think Genesis, it gives us these amazing sort of principles. Oh, is this working? Technical issues, sorry. Here we go, Genesis. Um, Genesis creation, division, and redemption is what this series is all about. Um, Genesis gives us these amazing principles for how to navigate life in the world as God made it. Uh, It gives us themes and images that come up again and again in the Bible um, that you'll sort of notice and recognize as you become more and more familiar with the Bible. These images uh, come up again and again. And as I've been listening to the talks, we've had two so far in this series, I've sort of had this idea of it being like a, a sort of chainmail suit of armor where each individual talk will sort of interconnect and, and um, I don't know, connect to two or three other talks. And, and that that's where the strength is in, in, in how those individuals' talks connect. So uh, this is also just a quick plug for any of our, our regulars. All the talks are sort of carefully put online by um, our friend Sam over here. Um, he amazingly and lovingly does that every week. Um, so do go and check them out if you've missed any or if you know you're going to miss any in the coming weeks um, because the strength is, is going to be in the series as a whole um, rather than any individual talk. So this morning, I am going to be trying to take on one of the biggest questions ever to face humanity, uh, and I've got about 20 minutes to do so, so um, that is going to be good fun. Um, So there's some details on there for a website called Slido. Um, You can get your smartphones out at this point um, if you have them, and maybe enter in those details, slido.com or sli.do into your web browser. and enter the hashtag CCL, and hopefully it should come up with a a question for you to be answering. Um, So if you wanna swap over to that screen, Ben. Is this working? Yeah, great, fantastic, here we go. I love it, fantastic. (laughs) That is gonna come up so much. Yeah, so the question this morning is, what is the meaning of life? Um, And it's been been Barney's dedication, hasn't it? Um, I I want you to imagine that in a few years' time, uh, Barney is sat there on Harry's knee, uh, and he turns up and looks at Harry and says, Daddy, what's the meaning of life? Um, (laughs) What's my purpose? What am I here for? Um, So this is a bit of a brainstorm to help Harry answer that question. That's what, that's what we're doing this morning. Yeah, a little bit of help, there we go. Um, yeah, so we've got some good ones there. Love is in there, worshiping God is in there. We'll come back to 42 at some point. Uh, <laughs> whatever wants God. CCL, that's an interesting one. I'm not sure that CCL is quite the meaning of life. Um, a good slab of Stilton, fantastic. Um, yeah, some very good answers there. Um, has everyone chipped in? I love and worshiping God and to love and be loved. Those are really good answers, absolutely. Um, do you want to go back to the slide deck, Ben? Um, thank you so much for chipping all those thoughts in. 
amazed some amazing, really good ones in there. Um, uh, here we go. Sorry, technical issues. Oh no, go back. There we go. It's it's not 42. Um, by the way, that's an image from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, in which they find out the meaning of life is 42, apparently. Um, but I want to say that the Bible says something slightly different. Um, it's, not, it's not 42. Um, and the Bible's perspective is, in fact, found in our reading this morning. Um, so, let's read together. It's Genesis 1, uh, verses 24 to 27. If you've got a paper Bible, hopefully it should be fairly easy to find. It'll be on page 1 or or page two, maybe. Um, if you're on know, tablets or whatever, you'll find it fairly easily. So last week, we had Abby's introduction to the first chapter of Genesis. And we were reading this poem um, about the sort of day-by-day account of God creating the world. And this day, we're going to talk about uh, chapter day six of that poem. Let me just get this up here, uh, which is described in these verses. Uh, and the poem's all about God turning the primordial chaos into a world of pattern and order. God created the seas and the skies, and he filled them with light and life. And the climax of the whole poem comes here in, in these verses, where it says, And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So this morning, we're going to hone in on verses 26 to 28 from that passage. Uh, and in particular, this sort of famous phrase, the image of God, uh, that's known in Latin as the imago dei. It's like an idea that's been discussed and debated for thousands of years. 
Um, so I want us to get involved in that conversation. I don't have another Slido, but maybe turn to your neighbor or have a think in your head. What might it mean for humans to be made in the image of God? Um, so I'll give you like a minute to do that maybe. <laughs> um. Okay, hopefully, hopefully that's given you enough time. I've given you a minute or two to answer a question that's been de debated for thousands of years, but hopefully you've all landed on the right answers. Um, we'll see. Um, so, oh, there are sort of three main views that people have had over the course of history about the answer to this question, what is the image of God? Um, the first is a sort of sub what they call a substantive or metaphysical view. Those are really long words. Basically, what it means is that there's something to do with our human knowledge, our morality, our capacity to have spirituality that is where the image of God might be found. Um, there's a second view that it's something to do with how male and female and humanity sort of relates together. That's called the, the relational view. Um, was held in particular by a guy called Karl Barth um, 100, 100 years or so ago um, in Switzerland. But anyway, yeah, that's, that's sort of another idea. Um, the third view is this sort of functional view that there's something about our character and our calling that particularly reflects um, God. Now, like I say, all those views have been held by different, like, really prominent theologians over the course of time. Um, so let's like hold them all together but it's the third one in particular that I would like to focus in on this morning the functional view um, and that's partly because I think that's the one that comes out of the passage um, best so to start with I'm gonna take us back to school and do a really quick history lesson we had some maths from Abby last week um, we're going to do a little bit of history this morning, which happened to be my subject that I did at, at university. Um, so three points of history backgrounds, really fast. They're also on your handout um, there. So the first is that in the ancient Middle Eastern world, and hopefully this is going to come up. Oh, sorry. Ah, the computer's been a bit slow this morning. Um, I will keep on going potentially because it is on your handout. Oh, <laughs> we're back to the start. Okay. Mm. It doesn't seem to like this slide very much. Um, basically, the first point I was going to make is that in the ancient Middle Eastern worlds, uh, this idea of an image was that an image held the essence of the thing that it was, it was sort of representing. Um, the word in the Hebrew text is uh, tselem, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, but it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to sort of talk about um, idols that the foreign nations had of their, their gods. Um, and the idea was that the statues that other nations had, um, they weren't statues of like the god themselves, they knew that the statues weren't god themselves, but that they were their representation on the earth, um, hopefully. We're almost there. Sorry for this um, slight technical hiccup. Let's go. Right, let's try again one more time. 
Oh, fantastic. Image, right, okay, cool. So you've got two of them up there. These guys are called the, the Lamassu. They were um, found in northern Iraq. They sort of contained the essence of, of the god. Um, now, a second one. So the second idea that I want to introduce you to is that in the Middle Eastern world, the king in particular was seen as the embodiment of the god on earth. Now, if you look at those Lamassu and compare them to this guy, um, he has quite a distinctive look. I'm not sure if I could get away with it myself. Um, he is called Sennacherib. He was the king of Assyria, and he has the exact same sort of long square beard and hat that those Lamassu have. So the king in particular, he was revered as a sort of semi-divine figure across the ancient world. He was the one that was known as the image of God. And you get that on inscriptions on sort of tombs across uh, from Egypt all the way to Iraq um, that says the king was the image of God. I think Tutankhamun is the one that I've put on your handout. So the king alone was the embodiment of God on the earth. He uh, and that, that sort of title, that legitimated his power structure. Um, if you walked past those Lamassu every day, you would know who you were going to pay your taxes to at the end of the month. He was the one in power. He, was, he, he alone was the living representation of God on the earth. And the rest of humanity in sort of ancient Middle Eastern literature, humanity, we were just slaves, the slaves of the gods. So the answer to that question, what is the meaning of life, was quite straightforward for an ancient Middle Easterner. Uh, it was to work the land, to feed the gods, and to pay my taxes to the king, who was the image of God. So I'm just going to run through a couple of ways in which Genesis 1 sort of subverts that idea. Um, number one, Genesis. in Genesis, the image of God is held by all humanity together. It's not just held by one single ruler. Um, the word Adam, Adam, in that passage, that's the Hebrew world word meaning all humanity. And so in the Christian worldview, we can say that no one race or color or creed has a unique ancestry. Instead, we are all made in the image of God. Uh, and in particular, a really radical departure in Genesis compared to the rest of the sort of Middle East was that women are treated as equal from the start. They're not subordinate to men. They are all made in the image of God, which is an idea that I think Rich and Kate are going to pick up in a few weeks' time. The second point up there is humanity is made a partner in God's work of ruling. Humanity is not God's subordinate slaves. Um, this is a, a sort of dignity that you don't get elsewhere in Middle Eastern literature, that, that we're sort of a partner with God, not just like the, the sort of slaves at the bottom of the system. The third point is that humanity is given a task, and that task is all about representing God on the earth together. Um, N.T. Wright, he's probably the UK's most foremost theologian at the moment, he talks about um, the image of God being like an angled mirror that sort of reflects and represents God out into the world. We are, uh, are God's representatives on earth, and we have royal work to do. Um, if we see in verse 28, there are sort of four what they call imperative verbs. It says, be fruitful 
multiply, fill, and subdue. Those are sort of royal, ruling, kingly uh, type language. Uh, and that's the jobs that humanity is, is given to do. But there is a point, this, um, this commission isn't without its limits. At the end of the day, Genesis 1 is very clear about who calls the shots, uh, and that's God. Um, there's this quote from this Jewish scholar called Naam Sana. He says, humanity is not inherently sovereign, but enjoys its dominion solely by the grace of God. There's an example of this in this passage, uh, which is that at the end, humanity is given only fruits and green plants for food. Um, to note, I'm not gonna be advocating a uh, vegan or what they might call a rabbit-based diet um, before certain individuals in here get nervous. Um, thinking maybe of Rich or Aaron, you might not be very keen on that. Uh, meat is given slightly later on in the, in the Genesis narrative um, to be allowed to eat. But the point is that God is the one with the ultimate power. Humans rule and reign alongside him, but we owe our obedience to him all the way down to even uh, what we're allowed to, to eat in the Genesis narrative. So to summarize, and it's right there at the bottom of your handout, it says, Genesis 1 teaches that all of humanity is made in the image of God with an overarching task. To, re to reflect and represent his glory in all the earth and royal duties to deliver within his divine remit. We're a bit like middle managers, taking on responsibility within our own area of life under his sponsorship and direction. So, oh, we got stuck again. Oh yeah, there's the angled mirror. There we go. Okay, so what does this mean for us today in the 21st century? Um, so to begin with, I, I want to stress Abby's point from last week about us having sustainable rhythms of life. There's a huge amount of work for us to do, but the image of God will always look like not like us burning out and just getting really stressed out about everything, but stepping into God's rhythms and patterns of life. Um, but that said, um, yeah, the first point is we can, uh, the image of God helps us to overcome what we might see as a sort of sacred, secular divide in our lives. Some of you may have come here this morning thinking that the only parts of your life that were valuable to God were the times that you prayed or that you worshipped or, or that you came to church on a Sunday. Instead, uh, this idea of the image of God helps us to see that all of our lives and work are instrumental to fulfilling our, our purpose as humans made in the image of God. We are blessed uh, by him with a function, and we reflect that best when we're creative, when we fulfill the earth's potential, when we bring goodness out of the earth. Now, it might surprise some, but the ultimate picture of sort of the end point of the Bible is a sort of garden-like city. It's not either returning back to the Garden of Eden or escaping off into heaven. The point is that we uh, create this amazing city, uh, a heavenly city on earth. 
Um, that there is a picture of Leeds, which kind of looks a bit like a garden-like city in there. Um, it's from Belle Isle in South Leeds. I took that on, on Friday when I was out for a run. Um, but it's that idea of, of nature and the city both being uh, fundamental to God. And what that means is that all the work that goes on in the city is of infinite value to God. It means that when uh, Russ is doing an amazing job of HR in his day job, he is doing so in the image of God. It means that when Jerry or Joe are doing, or any of the other PhD students in here are doing really good work on their research projects, they are doing so in the image of God. It means that when Carolyn is caring for Isaac or when Liz and Pam and Julia are out there serving the community in Bramley, they are doing so in the image of God. I could go on and pick out more and more people amongst us, but the point is that we need to continue to think bigger and wider about how does all of my life reflect and represent God on the earth in Leeds. Um, and that's just like a super quick introduction. If you want to dump, jump further into those ideas, there's a couple of book recommendations up there. Um, a book called Garden City by John Mark Comer and a book called Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. And they take that idea and work it out further how you can reflect God with all of your life. So that's my first point. Just a couple more points before we finish. The second is that our image has become tainted, and we'll learn a bit more of that, about that in the next uh, few weeks. But Jesus himself is the perfect image of God, and through Jesus' spirit, we are gradually remade to better reflect God's nature in our day-to-day -day lives. It's only in Jesus that we can fully reflect and represent God on the earth. He alone is the perfect image of the divine. So by pushing into Jesus and allowing him to change us by his spirit, we can sort of better and better fulfill our duty of ruling and reigning alongside uh, Jesus on the earth. The final point on there about what this might mean for us today is that knowing that all humans are made in the image of God means that we must treat each other infinitely seriously. Um, this is brought out elsewhere in the Bible. In Genesis 9, um, uh, murder is outlawed on the basis that why would you kill somebody that's made in the image of God? In James 3, it, it takes this even further and says we have to be really careful about how we speak about other people because they too are made in the image and likeness of God. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis that I put on there. He says, there are no normal people you have never met a mere mortal. I wonder how that might change how you view the person sat to your right or your left. Uh, they too are made in the image of God. Um, it may not look it all the time, but they are. Um, I wonder how it might change your view of the people that you pass on the street on your sort of way back home uh, later today, or the person you sit next to on the bus on your sort of commute into work or university uh, later this week. They too are sort of created by the, the creator's loving hands made in his likeness. 
how might that change how you respond to them, how you speak about them, how you act towards them, and how you make big or small decisions in, in your life to love and care for them. So I want to come back to Harry. Um, has that helped at all? Um, oh, gosh. We'll see. Maybe, maybe that's a six out of ten. We'll see. We'll have a further conversation at some point. Um, I want to say that humans, the meaning of life is that humans are made to all together reflect and represent God on the earth. We are called to partner with him in his work of bringing order and goodness out of chaos and brokenness. And when we are filled by his Holy Spirit, we are made more fully like the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. And our aim and purpose is to reflect him with all of our lives.